Very, very cool. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll get into our message this morning. Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you're here. And we just, uh, we are awestruck that you turn up when we turn up, Lord God. That, that, in fact, you're always around us, Lord God. But that as we gather this morning, we know, Jesus, you promised to manifest your presence among us. And Lord, t- today, Lord, we ask that you teach us, you guide us, Lord, that as we look into your word of God, the Lord God, that we would be transformed from glory to glory by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Very, very good. Well, today we're starting a new series, and I'm excited about it. Um, and we're going to be teaching this month, and, and I'm praying across the whole month that you come to church with perhaps a greater openness than you normally do, a, a, greater, a, a greater sort of a willingness to hear from God, and a willingness to be challenged. Is that all right? If, if you're visiting, I pray that you're comfortable and you're enjoying yourselves. However, today, we are do- every now and then we have to do this, and we're, doing, we're getting into some home truths of Scripture. Is that all right? The Bible teaches a whole lot of stuff, and today we're going to get into the home truths of Scripture and faith. What does it mean to actually believe in God? Now, you know, a lot of people believe in God, uh, but they don't necessarily believe in the same God that we read about in the Bible. Uh, they, they believe in a God, but I'm talking about belief in the God. What does that mean? He's the creator. He's our master. He's judge. He's king. He's a God of love and a God of power. He's a God of, of glory and fire. These are all things we read about in Scripture. Um, and what, when we say we believe, what do we mean? You know, we live in a culture that's pretty open to a, a belief in a general God. Uh, but when we read Scripture, we see an actual person who's a certain type of person. Isn't that right? So the question we've got to ask ourselves is how different are we than the society and culture around us? Are we just cultural Christians or are we committed to a God who we know and who loves us? Is that all right? One of the Christian leaders who I love to listen to is a pastor by the name of Craig Groeschel. Um, and uh, he's one of the few people in the world who can't actually say his own first name correctly. Uh, being an American, he thinks his name is Craig, but it's spelt Craig. Uh, and anyway, Craig Groeschel, and um, m- most of, close to all of what I'm sharing this morning is taken from his notes and sermons. Is that all right? So I'm just referencing that uh, for two reasons, because it's the right thing to do. And secondly, all of you have access to the internet, and I don't want to look too stupid. Uh, is that cool? Uh, and the reason I'm stealing his ideas is not because they're brand new and different, but he puts this in a way that is helpful. He's written a book which is called Christian Atheist, and I recommend if across the month, maybe why don't you buy the book on Kindle? It's about $11. Um, he's a really straightforward, normal sort of a guy, Craig Rochelle. He's not a theologian as such, um, and his books are real straightforward and easy to read. Um, so it's sort of a no-nonsense approach to Christianity, which I find refreshing. So why don't you get the book? It's called Christian Atheist, and you can read along as we preach through some of the material. Is that cool? Well, let's get into it. Uh, We've got a scripture here this morning that we're going to start with, and and this is from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5. If you know this passage of the Bible, you know that this is a serious bit of the Bible, and it's talking about the end times. And as we read it, what I want you to do is just think about whether you've seen any people like this. Is that all right? Okay, Paul says this, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, says should be coming up. Rachel Barrett, just check that plug bit. I will make sure that plug bit. Okay, I'm going to start reading and we'll, we'll leave it to them. There we go. 
There it is there. If you can't read that, there's something wrong with your eyes. Go to the doctor. Um, <laughs> you should know this. There will be terrible times in the last days. A bit of encouragement for you right at the start. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Anybody seen? Is there evidence that we are loving ourselves a little bit more? There's a thing called Facebook. You can look on that and just see whether that's true. Lovers of themselves. I've got a whole website about me. Lovers of money. People loving money. Are there people out there love money? Uh, there are people who are boastful. People will be proud. Uh, people will be abusive. Are people abusive. People will be disobedient to their parents. Shock. This is a shock. I have, a, I have on firm suspicion there are people in church today. There are people in those kids' programs today who are disobedient to their parents. Uh, people will be ungrateful, unholy, without love. People will be unforgiving in the last days. They'll be slanderous. They'll lack self-control. They'll be brutal. They'll be not lovers of the good. They'll be lovers of evil. They'll be treacherous, rash, conceited. And they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How many people think there might be some people in the world today who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Yeah? In the last days, there are going to be people who have a form of godliness, but, they'll, they'll, but denying its power. In, in, in the New Living Translation, it says they will act religious, but they'll reject the power that could actually make them godly. So they'll, they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. They'll act religious, but they'll reject the power that could actually transform them. This finishes like this. Stay away from people like that. If you want your money back this morning, I'm sorry you can't. It's not the warehouse. There's no bargains, and there's no money back guarantee. Uh, but it does get worse before it gets better. You know, the problem with the Scripture is not so, uh, you know, look at all those wicked people out there. The problem with the Scripture is there's a whole bunch of things in there that we, you know, that we're definitely not. You know, we're definitely not some of those things. But there's a whole bunch of those things that are listed in there, and, and Paul's writing this list of this is how evil the world is going to be. The problem when we read it is that there's just a few too many of those things that seem to be describing me. This, you know, and I'm not suggesting that 100% of those words describe me, but at some time in the, across, the, across a month, at least 80% of those words could be used to describe me by the people that I'm fighting over a car park for, uh, you know, by, by the people that are, that are serving me in the supermarket. They could possibly use some of those words to describe me. Now, the reality is that often in our approach to God is that we want God, but we only want just enough of God. We treat God like he's a bit of an, like an antidote, like, it's, like God is some sort of medication that we don't want to overdose on. We want just enough of God to get out of hell. We, or, or we want just enough of God to get into heaven. Now, Catholics would suggest those are two different amounts, but the reality is some of us are, are, are find ourselves serving God just enough, believing in God just enough, honoring God just enough, honoring God to a level that is acceptable to us, we want God, but we don't want to get too into it. We don't want to go overboard. We don't want to change our lifestyle. We don't want it to affect us. We, so often I find myself wanting to be a Christian, but I'm wanting to remain a normal New Zealander. The problem is that in the last days, there will be people. And the culture that we're surrounded by is a culture that we've got to understand is driving us away from God rather than towards Him. An example of this is... Um, 
One of my favorite things in life is Sunday lunch. How many people enjoy Sunday lunch? Not enough of you enjoy Sunday lunch. You need to make it more of a priority. Uh, growing up, I grew up in church, so we'd always be at church in the morning, and then we'd always have lunch at someone's house. And the church I grew up in was a small Pentecostal church. We were the only people going to heaven, the 120 of us or so, and uh, the rest of you were all going to hell. Uh, I realize now that that was wrong. Uh, and, uh, but at the time, it was awesome. Uh, that, was, that was the one thing we believed that was wrong, was that we were the only people who were right. Um, it does lead to other error down the track, but we managed to escape. But yeah. One of the things that was cool is that we had all our uncles and aunties. Well, it's just our family in the church, obviously. But uh, we'd, and we would go to church in the morning. I'm exaggerating, excuse me. We'd go to church in the morning, and then we'd go to an uncle's house, or we'd go, everyone would come to our house uh, for lunch. And people would bring various good things, good things for Sunday lunch. And back in the day, in the 1980s, they still had these things called hot bread shops. How many of you remember you go to the hot bread shop? Isn't it a weird thing? It was such a stupid name, a hot bread shop, uh, you know, rather than just a bakery. Uh, anyhow, it was the hot bread shop, and if you went in there asking for cold bread, they'd send you out. Uh, but a hot, the, you'd go to the hot bread shop, and you'd get fresh bread, and someone would bring a cooked chicken, although not really in the 80s because they were about $25. Uh, but uh, so be, there'd be luncheon, and there'd be ham, and, the, and there'd be slabs of butter on the fresh bread. How many people know that that is a meal all by itself? And uh, Sunday lunch was awesome because usually your parents were busy, and you could eat as much as you wanted. How many of you know that that's right? But every now and then in our extended family, and it was usually around commission time, because uh, all of my uncles and my dad were salespeople. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> Hard to believe it. I come from a long line of salespeople. <laughs> all of my uncles and my dad were salespeople. And uh, at commission time, one of the uncles or dad, someone would have hit it big. And there was enough of us that someone got good commission. And so usually they would go bananas. Particularly my Uncle Ross would go bananas. Uh, Dad would go bananas. And they would shout a whole bunch of people to a buffet lunch at the James Cook Hotel. Well, now, growing up, that was awesome because it was in the city, and you'd go up the lift, and it was a big flash restaurant. Uh, it was so flash they had like a margarine sculpture of a mermaid type of thing. Have you remember those? Yeah, and it had a few cuts in the bottom where Thomas Greenwood, my cousin, buttered a bread roll. <laughs> but the, the beautiful thing about that, a big buffet like that, is that it's got all, it's only got good food on it. It's just got good food. It's just, and it's just awesome. And again, parents are busy, so you just have ham. You just have ham for lunch. Uh, ham, or ha- how many of you have ever done that? You just like, I'm just, going Christmas, I'm just having ham. I'm not going to waste my time with potatoes and peas. I'm just, you know, I understand that they're important, but today I'm just eating ham, right? And the beauty of it is you just eat what you want. And the, the key about a buffet is you eat only what you want. And you eat as much of it as you want. The problem is that if we do following Jesus like that, we're going to be in trouble. Because then we, you know, oh, you know we, we go along the buffet. You know, maybe it's like a tea room and you're sliding a tray along. That's the best thing about a tea room is the tray slider thing. Uh, yeah, if, you, if you didn't grow up in New Zealand, you don't know what that is. You have to go to um, Pataru to visit a tea room now. Uh, but... As you go around the buffet, you just get what you want. And, and I'll, just, I'll just get a little bit of the, oh, the love of God. I love that sermon about the love of God. I'm going to listen to that love of God sermon again. I'm going to get more of that. I'm, I'm, I might just skip the judgment of God. Uh, I, I read the grace of God, the grace of God. That is awesome. That is awesome. Discipline of God. There's a whole table over there. There's a whole extra buffet of the discipline of God. I'm not even, I actually haven't even Notice that one because I'm focusing on the mercy of God and the provision of God and the favor of God. Uh, and, and if mum's watching, maybe you put a little bit of green on your plate. Hey, 
maybe the pastor's watching and saying, you know, you, you put a little bit of discipline on. Go back to your table. And you eat the ham. Love, mercy, cream. And then when no one's watching, you slide the greens onto your little brother's plate. And, you know, the problem is if you ate like that, come on, if we all ate like that, you'd look like I did when I was 12. Big, fat, round kid, right? If you ate like that, that's who you'd be, right? You wouldn't be healthy. You wouldn't be strong. You wouldn't be everything God called you to be. And if we approach Scripture like that, if we approach God like that, just taking what we like and eating as much of it, then we miss out on so much of the health and the power of what God has got for us. Amen? We won't live a long and satisfying life. Let's have a look at the Scripture. Psalm 36, verse 1 to 2. And this one is, can we do uh, the in New Living Translation? Is that all right? I like to, how many people would love to volunteer for AV? Uh, <laughs> when Jono's on, do it when Jono's on. Uh, it says this, for the choir director, so this, is, this one's for you, um, Laura, the choir director today. For the choir director, uh, this is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Okay, so this is a song. Imagine singing this. I challenge you, Patti, if you, can, if you can hear me in the parents' room, I challenge you to write this song. Sin whispers to the wicked. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts, deep within their dark, evil hearts. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. And it says this in the New Living Translation, they have no fear of God at all. In, in the older translation, it says they have no fear of God to restrain them, right? They have no fear of God to restrain them. So sin whispers to the wicked deep in their heart. They have no fear of God to restrain them at all. And in their blind conceit, they cannot even see how wicked they really are. Those evil people, fear of God, no fear of God. They've got no fear of God to restrain them. So sin whispers to a wicked person deep in their heart. Sin whispers to them, but because they have no fear of God, they've got no honor of God, they don't, they're not terrified of God, there's nothing to restrain them from doing whatever they want, from approaching life however they want. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the third form. Imagine the whole entire year nine who weren't terrified. If, imagine if they weren't frightened of the school principal. You know, heaven help us on that day, right? In their blind conceit, these people are so, they're conceited, they're blind, they're so conceited, they're blind, and they, they're, they're so up themselves is what the psalm's saying. Imagine that. Sing that at church society. You so up yourself, you don't even know how, how evil you are, right? We should put that on a billboard. Equipus Church, you guys are so up yourself, you don't even know how wicked you are. I reckon we'll get more media attention than Pastor Lyle with his cancer one, right? They, don't, they think so much of themselves that they're blind to their own evil deed. This, this, is a, this, is a, this is two verses about people pulling their fingers at good judgment, right? Look at those evil people. The only terrible thing about the scripture is that the nagging thought that the psalmist might be thinking about me while he's singing it. Because the problem with problem with mocking someone who's so conceited that they don't even know how wicked they are is it's quite a conceited thing to do. Uh, you know, we, when we look at other people who are so wicked they don't know how wicked they are, we're in quite a proud position. We're quite a conceited uh, position. Um, have you ever had a wicked idea? Has sin ever whispered 
deep within your heart? Have you ever been in the position where sin is spoken to in your heart and you've been unable to restrain yourself? This one's for you. Is it possible that I'm so conceited that I'm blind to my own wickedness? Well, I wouldn't know if I was. So if it's possible, it could also be probable. If I'm blind, I'm blind. Looking around the room, it's obvious that a whole bunch of you are thinking, oh, crap, I've come to church on Hellfire and Brimstone Day. Once a month, I need to find out when he's doing this and I can avoid it. You know, the reality is that sometimes it's hard to unhear something that we've heard. Now that you know there's a scripture in the Bible talking about how conceited humanity is, you're always going to be wondering, right? But once again, I just remind you of that there's no money back guarantee. You know, um, the fear of God isn't quite the same as like a gut level terror. So, so there's, a, there's a fear of God, that's, there's a fear that sets us free is what we're saying with, with awestruck. And, 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 and that's why I've used the word awestruck. To live with the fear of God is to live life awestruck. And, and you know, this, this weekend, uh, the, I think a bunch of us, I know a few of us, are actually pretty sad because of with Jerry Collins passing. You know, Jerry Collins is a hero rugby player for a bunch of us who watch them play, right? And it's a pretty sad thing, and, and, and it's always a sad thing when someone's cut down tragically, you know, for both Jerry and, and his partner. But Jerry Collins is a pretty good example of the fear that I'm talking about. So Jerry Collins is a fearsome player, right? Like, you know, I, I grew up watching, watch, I've, I've probably watched every single test match Jerry Collins played in. I, I probably watched most of the games he played for the Lions, and I probably watched most of the games he played for the Hurricanes. You know, big, I don't know, because I had, I, did, I had probably a pretty small and pitiful life, right? But, but Jerry Collins watching him play, on the, when I'm, if I was watching him on the TV, that's a pretty terrifying prospect, isn't it? It was, it was actually a pretty frightening thing watching Jerry Collins make tackles while I was watching it on the TV, right? Uh, and it was pretty, uh, but, but, but if you talk to, and you're hearing so much about it in the media at the moment, the, for the people who actually played against Jerry Collins, they had a whole different experience of the fear of Jerry Collins, right? So I had a respect for him, but the people who had just been tackled by him or the people who faced the prospect of being tackled by they had an experiential awareness of the fearsomeness of him as a player, right? So you think you'd be, you're, you'd be awestruck. You'd get wowed by Jerry Collins. You know, he tackled people 10 meters backwards. He would tackle people out of the game. He tackled people out of their careers, right? He was, he was a beast on the field, right? And we've got to understand that right across, all around Jerry Collins, all sorts of people were watching, and all of them were having a different experience of awe. The player who just got tackled, the people watching the player who just got tackled. All of the people in the stadium would have had an experience of that. The commentators have an experience of that. The people watching on the TV, the people listening on the radio, the people reading about the tackle the next day are still going to go, whoa, he made a tackle that knocked a person 10 meters backwards, right? That's the wow that we're talking about with God. Multiply that by infinity, right? We're talking about a God who's infinitely more powerful, right? Infinitely more loving. And we should be infinitely more awestruck by this God that we serve, by this God that we follow. The problem is this, that we don't fear God because we don't know Him. Because we approach God, maybe we have a reading the newspaper the next day type of experience of God. 
Maybe we have a, a, a watching, listening on the radio type of experience of God. Maybe we've got a sitting in the stands type of experience of God. But God wants us to understand him like we're playing in the game. Like we're actually part of his world. He's actually revealed himself to us. Because then we're living awestruck. Then God makes a difference in our world. The last thing we want to be as a church is a bunch of people who know about a God who's powerful. We want to be a bunch of people who know a God who's powerful. At Equippers Church, I believe you come to church on Sunday to be equipped. Equipping people for life through faith in Jesus Christ. However old you are, that's why we have great kids programs. That's why we, you know, that's why I help Gloria figure out her phone for the live stream because we've got to be equipped. Because I know Gloria needs to listen to the message tonight because sometime this week, someone's gonna, it's going to come up in conversation because Gloria spends a lot of her week looking for people to share the gospel with because right around our city, Gloria is one of many touch points for the kingdom of God where God wants to reveal himself in our city. So we've got to have God reveal himself to us. We need to be equipped. We need to go from this place with a real revelation of God. Amen. There's two ideas we want to share this morning and then uh, a bunch of ideas for the rest of the month. So don't get, don't get worried if you feel like, man, two ideas is not really enough. There's a whole bunch of other ideas we're going to talk about. Is that right? The first one is this, is that when we fear God, when you fear God, you serve Him without conditions. When you fear God, you serve Him without conditions. Conditions always mess up everything. Conditions in relationships mess up everything. Conditions in business is where things go wrong. People don't go, to, you don't go to court about a business deal, about the main ideas you go, it's always about the conditions. When you're buying a house, it's, it's probably not the money is not the only thing you got to worry about. You got to worry about how can you get rid of your own conditions. I actually spent all of my spare time last week talking to my bank manager, talking to this person, talking to that person to try and get rid of some conditions so we can get an offer in on the house because we knew we didn't have enough money to, to win them over. So if we could get them an offer that was clean, then we might be able to sneak in which we didn't yet, but we'll see how we go, right? But I don't know what the conditions you're trading with God with, but I guarantee you've got some. You've got conditions where you say, I'll serve God, but not so much more, you know? Uh, here's some classic, these are, these are classic ones, right? These are classic ones that you get to, I get to hear about as a pastor all the time. I'll serve God, but I'm not gonna stop sleeping with my girlfriend. Because sleeping with my girlfriend, that's awesome. And I, I don't doubt it. The sleeping with your girlfriend, that's an awesome thing to do, right? But the reality is God said not to. But I'll serve God, but not. I won't actually allow it to touch really the, the deep needs of my life. I'll serve God, but I'm not going to tithe. Why would I give 10% of my gross income? Well, why would you do that? Probably the only reason you do that is because God said to. You, there's a lot of things you can read in the Bible about how when you do, God blesses you. And you can have, have testimonies from people who, who do tithe and it changes their life. But the really only motivating factor should be that God's so awesome and He said I should. But a lot of people say, I'll serve God, but I would never tithe. They don't even want to talk about it. They don't even think about it because they've got a condition. They've already said when they signed up, I'm going to serve God, but not so far that I look stupid, right? Not so far that it really, really costs me. I'll serve God. This is a classic one. I'll serve God, but not in Africa. Africa's like that classic, I'll serve God, but please don't send me to Africa. It probably goes back to the, 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 the origin of missions in Africa. You know, when those first missionaries went, David Livingston, they packed their belongings in coffins. Because they knew that that's how they'd be traveling home to England. It wasn't in case they needed a coffin. They packed their belongings in a coffin because they knew they would need one. 
on average, they, in the first year or two of missions in Africa, they last nine or ten months before they came back in their coffin. But people were lining up to do it. You had to apply and get accepted, and people got turned down, and they would apply again. Why? Because they had a coffin, they wanted to use it? No, because they were, they were living awestruck. They were living awestruck. They were serving God, and they were looking for the biggest way they could do it. They were looking for something awesome to do. I'll serve God, but not if it costs me time, not if it costs me money, not if it costs me personal reputation. Now, Abraham, how many people know Abraham in the Bible? Abraham is our, the father of our faith. Isn't that right? Abraham's the father of our father Abraham and many sons. The sons had father Abraham. This is what you could see on the 26th. And so we could do that song if we will. What's the end of the song? Father, father Abraham and many sons. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because we've been adopted into the family of Abraham. We, we, because we've been adopted into his family, we take on his nature of faith. The problem is that Abraham was such a hard out. If Abraham hadn't been such a try hard, then our Christianity would be a lot easier. Where does Abraham set the bar on this whole serving God thing? God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your promised son Isaac, and sacrifice him on a mountain. And Abraham doesn't say, well, God, that's a little unreasonable. That's going to set a difficult precedent for everyone who follows me. That's going to be uncomfortable in the, in the 2000s in the Western world when they have to make real sacrifice. Abraham just goes. It says the, early the next morning, I'd be sleeping in, but Abraham, early the next morning, he takes his son, his only son Isaac, he gathers wood and a knife, and he travels to the mountain, God says. As he's standing there, Genesis 12, 22, 12, as he's, he builds an altar, he puts Isaac, a teenager at this time, 14 years old, he binds him and puts him on this altar he lifts up the knife, and it says that he's about to strike his son. And this is what God says. Check this out. That's a drum roll. He says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't lay a hand on the boy. This angel calls out, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly Fear God. You've not withheld from me, even your son, your only son. Now, everybody read that with me. Now I know that you truly, how, how do you know that you truly fear God? How do you know that you fear God? God knows where you're at, but how do you know that you fear God? Do you know the only real measurement of fear of the Lord, the only real measurement is obedience. Damn it, this is, a, this is ridiculous. Isn't it? Abraham was this, this full on. He's the first follower. Everyone who follows God's following Abraham too. He's this first follower, and he followed as far as you can. He followed to the edge of what is possible, appropriate, what is acceptable. You know, I have a friend who preached 11 times in a single day at the same time as passing kidney stones. Which is a problem for me, because if I have a sore throat, I can't stay home and say I'm sick. Because I've got this example. Do you know, I have a grandfather who was a bottle of gin a day and alcoholic. He was, a, he was drunk for all of World War II. He was promoted 
six times and demoted five times. All of the time. He promoted for bravery five times. Six times, sorry. Promoted for bravery six times. Demoted for drunken disorderly behavior five times. He finished one notch up from where he began. He's a gin a day, a bottle of gin a day alcoholic until the day he decided to follow Jesus. In his late 30s and early 40s, he decides to follow Jesus. The next day he does not drink. And for the rest of his life, another 45 years, he does not touch a drop of alcohol. Which is a problem for me. Because what about my bad habits with I struggle with all of the time? What's wrong with me? What's different with me? I wonder if my obedience issues aren't so much about habits as they are about the fear of the Lord. The question we've got to ask ourselves, are we just cultural Christians? Are we buffet bandits turning up on a Sunday? Oh, the love of God. Oh, I love that love of God sliced thickly. I love, a, I love a slab of the grace of God with a spreading of the mercy of God. You know, I love that, right? The problem with the buffet is not that, it's not that there's not all the, you don't, it's not that you choose not to take the food you need. You don't even see it. The problem for us as Christians is we read our Bible, we don't even see the hard bits. You've all read Psalm 36 before, and you never thought, oh, maybe that's me. You just skip on. Oh, there's somewhere later in the psalm, there'd be something about the love of God. Oh, God spoke to me about how awesome I am. God spoke to me about how much he loves me. God spoke, but when you really read the Bible, when you have an awe of God, sometimes you read the Bible in the morning and it's not encouraging. Sometimes you read the Bible in the morning and it's terrifying. Sometimes you read the Bible in the morning and think, man, I've got to change. I've got to transform my life. What did Jesus say? Jesus was pretty straightforward. He said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It says here, if you love me, obey my commandments. That comma, <laughs> in other translations, the comma is interpreted this. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It brings us to an interesting point, uh, which is a, 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 there's an aberration of, in, of modern Christianity which has got something to do with our normal culture, and we take our normal culture and we bring it into our Christianity, and that's happened throughout all of history. You know, it was the first big problem in, in Christ, of, of culture impacting Christianity was when uh, the, the new Christian leaders were trying to make all of the new converts be circumcised so that culturally they'd fit in with the Jews, right? So they're t applying their current culture and trying to make it fit with the kingdom, right? And that's what nearly all of Paul's letters in the New Testament were about. You can't do that. The gospel's a revelation from God above. We need to, it, it needs to transform our culture, right? But the problem is we, we live in a culture of consumerism, and so we have a consumer focus on God. It's wrong for us to think we don't. We are consumers. We've been conditioned as consumers. That's how we approach things. We consume stuff. The only areas of your life where you don't behave like a consumer are places where you've actively trained yourself not to. Right, And in our focus on God, we often come to God because we need our life fixed. Why do we need our life fixed? Because it's broken. Why do we come to God? It's because He's the only one who can fix it, right? Now, these are, that's true. Life is broken. God's the only one who can fix it, right? And so we come to God to fix our life, but we do it in a consumer way. We, do, we pay what we need to get what we want. Right? And that's, uh, that's often the paradigm that we focus on. And we actually take our consumer mindset and we put it into Scripture. We read it into Scripture. 
right? If I do that, give and it will come back to you. Press down, shaking together, running over, right? And we take our consumer mindset. We say, well, that's a really good system. I'm going to give. Except that Jesus is talking about the judgment of God in that passage. (laughs) He's saying, don't judge or you'll be judged by God. If you give, it's going to come back to you. You press down, shake it together, running over. The thing that comes back to you is judgment of God, right? Right? But we just read it and we think, oh, that's a good little, oh, that's almost an investment strategy in one verse, right? If we're sick, we need God to fix us. You know, if our marriage is going well, we don't even talk to God. If our marriage is under pressure, we start to pursue Him. When our job and our career is progressing the way we want it to, we leave God out of the picture. As soon as we get laid off, as soon as grandma gets that diagnosis, as soon as the dog gets run over and we need to pray for a miracle and believe for ideal dogs to get to heaven, suddenly we're interested in the afterlife. Suddenly we're interested in in our future. We have got to understand when we're behaving like consumers. We've got to understand when we're just being cultural in our response to God rather than seeing Him for who He really is. When you fear God, you serve Him without conditioning and without a guarantee. Number two is this. When you fear God, you get ruined forever. Here's the big problem with the consumer Christianity. The big problem with consumer Christianity is not just that it's sort of theologically wrong. It's also that it doesn't last Because um, the more you get to know God, the more you find out that He's not really just into fixing your life. He also loves wrecking it. God loves to wreck your plans. He loves to change your plan. He loves to wreck your life. He loves to wreck you emotionally. He loves to wreck you. You know, when you commit, you know, when you commit to God, it's not like an NRL contract where you sign it and then 10 months later you say, I didn't really mean it. You can't just sign a contract with God just to up the ante in the negotiation. When you commit to God, it's not like a contract. It's, an, it's, it's, a, it's much more like a blood oath. He died for us. He paid a price. We acknowledge that and we commit to Him. See, consumers will shop around. But Christians are committed. You don't, we don't get the option. That's what Jesus said to His followers. Are, are you going to leave as well? He said to the 12, are you going to leave as well? Literally 25,000 followers just walked out. So let's say you're having church there in the Westpac Stadium. 20,000 people walk out, 12 people are left. You say to the 12 people, are you going as well? And, they, and Peter said this, where would we go? You have the words of life. Why? They were committed. They didn't have the option of shopping around. Consumers shop around, but Christians commit. We're not in a negotiation with God. You know, cultural Christians remain comfortable, but actual Christians go crazy. Have a look at um, have a look at Isaiah six. This is a picture of God, how God works. He he turns things around. He turns things upside down. We'll throw it up. Isaiah six verse one, uh, and it says this: that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on the throne, a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Check out this description. It's powerful. Uh, And the train of his robe filled the temple, and attending him were mighty seraphim. 
Each had six wings, these giant angels. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they flew. They were calling out to each other. Now, this is a relatively powerful devotional time in the morning, right? I'm, I'm seeing the Lord. I'm seeing His throne. Uh, his train is filling the temple. Like there's smoke and there's fire and there's angels and they're singing. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. I've got filthy lips and I'm among a filthy people. I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. He'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and he said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now, this is powerful. This is a famous little piece of scripture. This guy, Isaiah, becomes one of the, the more significant prophets in Israel's history. He, he prophesied significant detail about the crucifixion of the Christ, like details about how Jesus would be killed, details about how his beard would be pulled, details about what he would look like. He had a revelation of the realities of God and the Savior that were deeper than many, many others, and it's powerful, but it begins in this moment, and it's the year that King Uzziah died which is in, in Isaiah's context, it's the year, this is like saying, it was the year that everything fell apart. That's like saying, the year I lost my job, I saw the Lord. The, the year my wife left me, I saw the Lord. The, the year my grandma died, I saw the Lord. The year everything that I didn't want to fall apart, when it, the year that it fell apart, I saw the Lord. It's interesting when God reveals himself. It's actually more interesting when our eyes are actually open. It's interesting what God will use to withdraw the scales off our eyes. The, those moments when we, are, we can be more aware, suddenly God will take that opportunity when things go, go, go bad to reveal himself in new and in powerful ways, right? It's not always in our best moments that we see God most clearly. In this difficult moment, he sees the Lord. And in the middle of it, look at what, he didn't just see the Lord, he saw the Lord, right? He sees the robes, he sees the smoke, he sees these angels singing. The whole building is shaken to its core. Isaiah is likely serving in the temple as a priest as he's having this revelation. He saw God. He experienced God. And what was his response? The old translation, he says, whoa. But it's not the W-O-W-S-W-O-E. He basically screamed out. He, he suddenly realized he's a dead man. Not, he knew about God before that. He's a trained priest. But now he saw God. And he suddenly realized the power of God, the wonder of God. He's awestruck. In the very next scene, God's looking for someone to go and do something dangerous. Who will go for us? He's saying, who's going to be a prophet to a wicked generation? Who's going to be a prophet to now this wicked king? Because Uzziah died. The good king's God. The nation's at upheaval. And God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, oh, you know, I'll go, but I just need to look into the dental plan. I'll go, but do I get a car, a laptop, and a mobile phone? I'll go, but uh, did you mean Africa? No, I'll, I'll go. No, he doesn't. He just says, me. I'll go. Because he's awestruck. Because he fears God. Because he's not just, he doesn't just fear God. He's been transformed by his fear of God. He's been cleansed by his fear of God. 
I have a few friends. I have a friend who turned up at church with his girlfriend, and, and they saw the Lord. God spoke to them in, in a way that, that was dynamic, right? The grace, the love, the peace of God, they respond to Jesus. A month later, he shifts out of the flat that they're living in together. Three months later, they get married, and he shifts back in. Why? Because he's stupid. Now, a lot of people say, that's just stupid. He had to rent a whole other place for three months while they organized themselves. No, he's not, he's not stupid. He's awestruck. He's honoring God. They've been married. They've got three little kids now. They've been married for years. God's transformed their life, but God didn't transform their life in a process. He got transformed their life in a moment where he saw God, and then he started making decisions on the basis that God was real, that God was powerful, that God was big. I have a friend who at 11 years old, his father took him on a missions trip into Southeast Asia. And he's ruined. Now as an adult, he's there nine months of the year, and then he works as a kitchen hand in Wellington for the rest of the year. And the only reason he works is to save enough money to pay his way back to work in the refugee camp as well. Again, running a little kids program, keeping kids happy, teaching them bits and pieces. Why, he's ruined. He's ruined. He's living awestruck. He doesn't care about a a mortgage and a white picket fence. He literally doesn't care about it because he saw the Lord. As an 11-year-old, he saw God in the faces of suffering people, and he's living his whole life on the basis of that awestruck moment. I, I have another friend. He's a pastor. And I don't know what he earns, but it's probably, I hope, about the same as me. An average sort of wave. But I, I do know the exact number, the, I know the exact amount of the salary he turned down when he became a pastor. He was resigning his job. He said, God's called me. And he got a counter offer. 250000 Australian dollars. Is he crazy or is he, is he crazy? Yes, he's crazy. But he saw the Lord. God spoke to him. God said to him, come on, serve me in ministry. Is he crazy? Yeah, he's crazy. Is he committed? Yeah, he's committed. You know, I have a friend who, who turned up at church drunk. Not the same person. He, he said when he said this, he'd been drinking to feel better about life since he was nine years old. In his mid-twenties, he turns up at church drunk. In the worship, God speaks to him. At the end of the service, he responds in an altar call. He goes out to his car and he tips a whole box of beer out in the car park. Relatively offensive thing to do at church. He hasn't touched a drop of drink since. Two months after that, God spoke to him in the worship about, about drugs. He'd been smoking joints since the middle, the middle of his teenage years. God speaks to him in worship at church. And he hasn't touched another joint since. He's living awestruck. He's not living a convenient Christianity. He's not living a cultural expression. He's a desperate person who found a powerful God who transformed him. He's living a life awestruck. The question we've got to ask ourselves, is this us? Have we seen the Lord? Are we unaware of how wicked we are or are we aware of how powerful he is? Are we people who obey unconditionally? Are we living awestruck. If, if we're not living awestruck, we probably saw something different than God. We saw something less than God, or we've experienced something less than God. You know, and, and New Zealanders, are we just comfy cultural Christians? Are we consumers of God? I was thinking even in, in the prayer meeting this morning, in our nine o'clock prayer meeting, just a wee plug for the prayer meeting. If you come at 8.45, you get free coffee made by me. Don't tell Pete, because I sometimes don't write down the coffee. Pete, you need to chase it up, Pete. (laughs) 
the um, we were just sharing communion. Dougal, Dougal was sharing. He's leading the prayer meeting. And I just thought, you know, even in communion, are we consuming Christ or are we partaking of him? See, when we take communion, we think, well, I'm receiving this thing from God that cleanses me. But we're not. We're partaking in his death, which allows us to partake in his resurrection. We're sharing in his sacrifice, not consuming it. As Christians, are we slipping into consumer thinking? You know, come on, Equipus Church Wellington? Is that us? Do we want to be awestruck or do we want to be awful? (laughs) That's a bit cheesy, is it? James is like, (laughs) can't believe he did that. It just came to me then, I won't do it again. Come on, let's pray. Why don't we pray? Do you know, I'm, I'm worried for me. I'm, I am worried for me. I, I'm worried for us. I don't, uh, the last thing in the world that's worth our time and effort is just a comfy space for Christians to hang out. That's the love. What, there's no point in that. A revolution is something worth living for. A, a God that's alive in us has transformed us. A God who's all-powerful, who's all-glorious, who's, who's holy. If, if, we're not living, if we're not living for this eternal God who we have a revelation of, we are just living for our mortgage. Or we are just living for our comfort. Or we're, we really, if, we, if we're not, if we haven't seen the Lord exalted on His throne with the, 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 the train of His robe filling the temple of our life, the smoke and fire, if we haven't heard the angels singing, then we're just living for a slightly larger flat screen TV. Or for a happy feeling. I think we could live with so much more power. We could live with so much more meaning. We could live with so much more of the reality of God. If we live like, like Luca does on a Friday night out at Newtown Hall. Setting up in case people turn up. Like Harris and Strathmore. I'm inspired by our young leaders in our church. But they're not going to be able to sustain it if it's just a youth club that they're living for. But if, it, if, if they're responding to what God said, who will go for us? Then they'll be able to go. Amen. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your presence that's here. And God, we thank you for your word that so carefully instructs us, Lord God. That it, we thank you for scripture, Lord God, that it's profitable for our life. It's profitable for, for growth and for development of godliness within us. So we thank you for it. Jesus, we thank you for the faithful men who, who speak your word in Scripture. Lord, we thank you even for, um, for these ideas, Lord God, that have come to us, Lord, this morning. Lord, we open up our heart. Maybe you just make the decision this morning to open your heart and say, God, challenge me. What needs to change in my life that I'd honor you more closely? Lord, what needs to be transformed in my world? What do I need to do to get a closer glimpse of you, a more accurate view of you, God? God, if you're all-powerful, Lord, I want to see you more. Lord God, your, your glory, Lord God, your wonder, your holiness, Lord God, that we'd have revelation, Lord God. No, no amount of talking is going to make that happen. No amount of thinking or reading, Lord God. Only your Spirit revealing you, 
revealing yourself to us, Lord, revealing your power, Lord God. We open up our hearts, Lord God, even as your people, as a church, we open up the doors of this community of faith, Lord God, and we say, God, would you blow through us, Lord God. Lord, would the train of your robe fill this temple, Lord God. Lord God, would angels, the voices of angels fill this place of worship. Lord God, would this heart, this temple, Lord God, be filled with smoke and filled with awe and filled with wonder, Lord God. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we, as Lord, we're filled, Lord, this city, Lord God, will be filled with your glory. This city will be filled with your presence, Lord God. This city would be transformed. Come on, why don't we stand to our feet, lift our hands to God. You know, at Quippers Church, we're not really about a whole lot of things. It's really simple. We want as much of God as we can get so we can bring Him to our city. We want to be equipped with His power. We need to be equipped with His love. We need to be equipped with a revelation of Him. We need, we need to know Him. Why don't you lift your hands right across the room if you're comfortable doing that. Why don't you lift your voice? Come on, make a prayer to God. Say something to Jesus. Maybe you open your heart. Maybe you give God permission to turn up in your world like He turned up in Isaiah's world. Maybe give God permission to challenge you where you're living comfortable. Maybe, maybe give God the permission to bring you into a whole new space, to, to transform how you think about Him. Maybe, maybe challenge God to, to remind you again. Ask God to remind you again where, you, where you're missing His commandments, where, you, where you're living less than you know, living less than your call, living less than your potential. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your love. Just as you're standing there with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to surrender your life to God, uh, until you surrender your life to God and, and, and receive Him as your Lord, then all of the good bits in the Bible just are not available. There's no such thing as heaven for people who haven't surrendered to Jesus. There's no such thing as God's unfailing love. It, it's available to you. It's available to you, but it's not accessed outside of a, a surrender to Him. And that's probably a challenge for every one of us in the room. That we need to constantly live that life of surrender. But if you're here and you've never made a decision to surrender to God, you, you can do that this morning. And I'd encourage you to do it. I'd encourage you... If you're not comfortable making a real formal decision or declaration this morning, I'd encourage you to pray a prayer right now and say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. If you're really that powerful, show yourself to me, transform me, move in my world. But if you're here and you're ready to make a decision and say, yeah, I'm, I'm choosing to make God my God, the God of Scripture, I'm going to make Him my God, Jesus Christ, I'm going to accept Him as my Lord and as my Savior. If you're ready to do that, I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to actually pray with you and lead you in a prayer. I don't want to embarrass you in any way. I'm, I'm not asking you out of your seat or anything. But while everyone has their